let's do what we do and begin in silence. Just, as I said, make sure your phone is off. Take a deep breath if it helps to close your eyes. Some people like just to look at the floor in front of them. Don't look at your phone. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be at our ends and at our departing. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. Um, I want to let you know that the registration for the Suzanne Stabil event has already gotten over 100, I think Tim said 120 some odd this morning. Um, I don't know how many of them will be odd, but I will be because I'm a seven on the Enneagram. That's a weak attempt at humor. Um, the Enneagram is a very helpful tool to know and to use in your own spiritual work. I highly recommend that you know something about it. There is a book on the internet that you can get called The Enneagram Made Easy by a woman named, that book right there, hold that up. That's um, a cheap book. It's, it looks like it's dumbed down, but it's not. Uh, it's something you could give to an adolescent and help them know their number. Um, Lauren, one of our technicians, is a, is a one on the Enneagram. And when she told me that this morning, I said, oh, you're a perfectionist. So that's a good thing to know because you want somebody who is skilled at doing what she does with the technical stuff that makes this work to be a perfectionist. Some people look at an Enneagram book, like even the Enneagram Made Easy, and they have difficulty kind of discerning what their number is. So if that's the case for you, then on September the 10th, that's in two weeks, Brooke Summers Perry, who is a certified spiritual director, and uh, she was, by the way, trained by my spiritual director, Sister Lois Didion. Sister Lois is an expert in the Enneagram. Uh, Sister Lois is the one that helped me discern that I was a seven. Uh, because in her very gentle way, she said, uh, she asked me what my number was, and I told her that I thought I was a five, and we'd gotten to know each other uh, after several sessions, and she said, I don't think you're a five, and she gave me that book to take home and look at, and I came back to the next session I had with her, and uh, I told her, good catch, I, <laughs> I told her, I said, uh, I don't think I'm a five, I think I'm a seven. And she said, I think you are too. You're too much of a narcissist and uh, smart ass to be a five. Which is kind of something to hear coming out of the mouth of a nun. But <laughs> she pegged me accurately about that. So, and Sister Lois is an expert on the Enneagram, by the way. So she trained Brooke. Brooke is going to be here on the 10th. Uh, to help us with talking uh, about the Enneagram. So that's just a warning that, um, as I said, as publicity gets out into the wider community, we're going to sell this event out. So if you're not registered, I encourage you uh, to do so. And a registration fee for those of you who are live streaming and you're in another state or wherever, we will um, send out a registration link to the, um, we'll do this live stream on that event the morning of the event, I think. That's all you've done in the past, so I'm assuming that that's what we'll do. Okay? Is that okay? All right. <clears throat>
You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. That's pretty good. That song is one of the three pieces of a puzzle that began to come together for me this week as I was preparing for today. That song, You Are My Sunshine, was written in 1939, came from Louisiana. It was used in the governor's election for, uh, election for governor of Louisiana. I was born in 1937. And um, this is one of the most popular songs ever recorded, recorded by a bunch of different people over a long period of time. And I am uh, blessed or cursed, depending on whether you have to live with me or not, for having a memory that goes back to when I was two years old. I can remember things from then. I can remember my mother singing me this song at age three, four, five. I remember. Of course, I had no idea what it meant. She may have been pining for a lost lover. I thought it had to do with me. <laughs> but as Sister said, I am a narcissist, so that. Um, I, I knew when this song came out, uh, I mean, I had the awareness that we were at war. I remember uh, the Sunday afternoon when the news came on the radio that Pearl Harbor had been attacked. And then later, because we lived in a town just south of the Kentucky border where Fort Campbell, Kentucky was, which is where they were training paratroopers to go overseas, many of these young soldiers would come to our town on Sunday to go to church and after church they would get invited by my mom to come home for dinner for a Sunday lunch and they became regulars and looking back on it now I realize they were just boys they were just young young uh, men really and they they became regulars and um, uh, they would bring me things that they appropriated from the army base you know, like they would bring these big balloons that they would blow up and use tar for target practice, but I would have them to play with in my yard. It was a great thing. You are my sunshine. So that's one piece of the puzzle. The other piece is also a song that came from that same era. It was one, however, most of you likely don't know. It's based on a true story of an airplane the kind that dropped bombs on those people we considered the enemy. The plane had been badly damaged by anti-aircraft gunfire. None of the men on the plane was injured, but it was highly doubtful that the plane would be able to return to base. And so the pilot radioed their predicament back to the tower. And according to the story said, those of you who pray might consider doing so because we're coming in on a wing and a prayer. They made it back safely. That story got reported, and Harold Adamson wrote a song about it. This image is from the Natural Museum, um, National Museum of American History. It's a song sheet, piano song sheet of the music. And when I was in high school, we had music stores where the people would go and buy sheet music to bring home and play, play music like that. And so the lyrics were, and we all knew these as a kid, I could say this. Coming in on a wing and a prayer, coming in on a wing and a prayer, with one, our one motor gone, we can still carry on. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. How many of you remember that? Some of you, yeah, okay. It never became as popular as You Are My Sunshine, but we all knew it and sang it. And looking back on it now, I can realize how perilous those times were for the adults in my life. Of course, as a little kid, I had no 
awareness of this. We moved to another town in Tennessee, south of Nashville, when the fall I turned six. And now looking back, I realize we moved because my dad couldn't make a living in the town where we were. And uh, that never got presented to us as a family. Uh, only after a long time did I know that. Shortly after that move, he got called up to go to the Army. They called it being drafted. That terrified me that my dad was going off to service because both in the little town where I grew up and in Columbia, it was nothing to walk by and see flags hanging in windows with stars on them. And when I found out what that meant, it meant that the people in those homes had a father or a son who had been killed in the line of duty. And so as a six-year-old, very dependent on daddy, that was terrifying. I even had an idea that I could invent a suit that had bayonets coming out all around it and that if my dad wore that suit in the service, he would not be hurt because nobody could get that close to him. That's a little boy's thinking. In 1945, right before he was to go to report to duty, we dropped the atomic bomb and that ended the war and the draft ceased for my dad at that time. So he didn't have to go. So coming in on a wing and a prayer is another piece of the puzzle. Second, there are three pieces. The third piece is a line from a man who is referred to as St. Augustine. He once wrote that we should pray as though everything depended on God. We should work as though everything depended on you. He's now, as I said, called St. Augustine. That's the correct pronunciation of the word, not Augustine. It's Augustine. Um, he came to be known when he gained some prominence as Augustine of Hippo. And he was called this not because of his size, but because he was from the town of Hippo in North Africa. And eventually, after a very rock, rough and rocky start in the saint business, um, he settled down and became Bishop of Hippo. Uh, and that's why, in North Africa, that's why he's called the Bishop of Hippo. This guy shaped Christianity perhaps unlike no one other than St. Paul. He's had the most influence on Christianity, the theology of the church, than, than Augustine. He gave his idea to the church that sin was a sexually transmitted condition. That's why we baptize babies, by the way. Yeah. He uh, had also ideas about a just war, salvation by grace through faith. He came up with the idea of predestination. He was, in spite of all of his greatness, unable to cut the apron strings with his mother. And um, so you get this picture that the greatest theologian of all time, maybe the, I'll put him greater than Paul, um, was tied to his mother's apron strings. She followed him around, told him what to do, fussed at him because of his lifestyle. And uh, I wonder... How many people are aware that the man most responsible for shaping the Christian faith outside of Paul was black? That doesn't get much press. Now, Augustine's life was one of great turmoil and conflict. Uh, in the background of his life was the messy decline of the Roman Empire. And in the foreground of his life was the messy spectacle of himself. He was just one messed up character. His mother was Christian. His father was not, nor was he in the beginning. His parents had the wherewithal to send him off to the university in Carthage, where, as many college youth are prone to do, he entered a life of wasteful living. He paddled around, and this is his quote. I paddled around in hell's black river of lust, 
Now, let me translate that for you. <laughs> that means as a college kid, he was really sexually active. And uh, he eventually took a mistress. He had a son. Now, his mother didn't like this, but he ran away from his mother with the mistress and the son. Eventually, she caught up with him, but that's a whole other story we'll get to in a minute. He didn't like the Bible. He read it. He thought it was crude and simplistic. But he was attracted uh, by the sermons of Ambrose, and that pulled him toward Christianity. When his mother did catch up with him, she convinced him to marry a proper girl. And I say girl because she was a girl. They had to wait for her to become of age to marry. But in that time, his mother was a helicopter mom. She made him send the mistress back. He kept the son, if you can imagine. And his mother helped raise him. So um, during this period of time, Augustine read the book of Romans and had a conversion experience. Now, there are others who have done the same thing. Luther would have been in that category to have had that same kind of um, thing. Uh, and he became a monk after reading the, the book of Romans. So be warned, don't go home and read the book of Romans this afternoon. And shortly after becoming a monk, his mother died, but she had accomplished her goal. And there are few mothers outside of Mary and Susanna Wesley who have shaped the church more than Augustine's mom. Later, she was canonized and became a saint. I wonder what she would think today if she knew that Santa Monica, California was named after her. But anyway. Augustine became head of a church in Hippo. Eventually, he was named bishop there. And from that time until his death, he battled over and over and over about his sinful past, as he called it. And he became ashamed of his sinful past and obsessed with it at the same time. He's the one who, who is credited with praying, oh, God, deliver me from this, but not right now. Right? <laughs> So by this time, the church had already decided sex is a bad thing. That's why we have celibacy. And um, as I said, Augustine thought sin was a sexually transmitted disease. And so his notions of sex shaped his theology. Um, one of the, the lines that Augustine is known for is love God and do as you please. You've probably heard of that, right? You know, love to God and do whatever you want to. But you got to remember that context is important, and that sentence comes from the context where Augustine was arguing that violence against those who disagreed with you theologically was okay. So if somebody disagreed with you theologically, it was okay to do away with them. Just love God and do as you please. That's, so you might not want to use that phrase anymore. So it was in the midst of a huge political upheaval in Rome. Uh, Roman Empire was crumbling. Thousands of people fled from across the Mediterranean and got to Hippo, where he had the unenviable task of trying to hold these people together. And in the way that he did that was that he wrote a masterpiece of a book called The City of God. That's one of his great contributions. It took him 13 years to write. And in the city of God, Augustine imagines that there are two cities. There is a heavenly city and there is an earthly city. And sometimes these are entangled and sometimes they're at war with each other. And Christians need to grasp the idea that though we live in the city of earth, we're really members of the, of the city of heaven. And uh, it might be possible to be temporarily happy in the city on earth, but that was a temporary happiness, and where we really resided was in the city of God. Now, though he never meant it to be taken as such, after his death, people began to equate the city of God with the church. 
And so anyone who was not part of the church or was opposed to the church based on the teachings of Augustine could be done away with. So that's how the planting of the seeds of the Crusades got started out of this man's obsession with sex and his guilt about it and trying to be pure and all that. So I am aware that this prayer is sometimes attributed to St. Ignatius, but in my research it belongs to Augustine. Pray as though everything depended on God. Work as if everything depended on you. So that's the third piece of the puzzle. You are my sunshine. Coming in on a wing in a prayer. Pray as though everything depended on God. Work as if everything depended on you. And those pieces of the puzzle came together as I've been puzzling over this phrase in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father. One of the bright moments in my life was my encounter with Michael Moorwood. I am so glad, grateful, and graced that our paths crossed and that we have had him here twice. Once in person, which is where this photograph is from, and once on a Zoom um, meeting during the COVID. Um, you can go on YouTube and look for Michael Moorwood, and you can watch the entirety of this presentation that was done right here. It's, it's great. It's really worth the time. And if you also want to go on the Ordinary Life website, which, thanks to Wayne Herbert, looks really, really cool, you can click on the Resources button and find a piece that I wrote called My Encounter with Michael Moorwood. And that also includes a, a transcript of the interviews that were done on Progressive Christianity, the three interviews with Michael Moorwood. I read them over a Christmas holiday time, put them aside. I read them and I think, wow, this guy and I are on the same page. He's a seven on the Enneagram too, by the way, found out. And, and, and so I got on Google and I saw if he had a website and he did. And, I saw that I could contact him, so I reached out. He lives in Perth, Australia. So it was late at night in my time, and I sent him an email and said, boy, if you ever come to the United States, I'd love to have you come to Houston. I got a phone call from him in 15 minutes. And we chatted. It was great, and it's a long story, but one thing led to another, and he, he eventually came here. I love the books that he's written. You can go on Amazon and find some of them. He's got a book on prayer that's really worth reading. He's got a book on the Jesus imagined history. Uh, I was so energized when I met him. Nobody since Ilya Delio has kind of energized me as much as Michael Moorwood. And um, I remember saying to someone after we had secured his coming here, um, I've got a, a great speaker coming for Ordinary Life uh, special event, and one of the clergy on staff at the time there said, who is it? Tell me about him. I said, well, he's a defrock Roman Catholic priest, and she stopped me and said, that's enough. He's got an A-plus in my book already, <laughs> so um, he was great. I love the, uh, the way that Michael Moorwood does spiritual teaching, spiritual direction. By the way, he was a Roman Catholic priest in Australia. He did teachings like this, I guess, and others. And somebody said, oh, would you write this up? This is great. It needs a wider audience. So Michael Wood Morewood wrote it up. It, uh, somebody a conservative in the Catholic Church didn't like it, so they sent it to Rome. Uh, Ratzinger was head of the Commission on Doctrine at that time. He eventually became Pope, known as the Nazi Pope, right? And, and so Ratzinger uh, defrocked, took his orders away and forbade Michael Moorwood from ever teaching on Roman Catholic soil ever again anywhere in the world. That's power. This is not Roman Catholic soil, so he was okay here. 
One of the ways that Michael Morewood teaches is by asking gentle questions. And so he would say, what are you asking me to imagine when you ask me, for example, to pray? What am I to imagine? Who am I praying to? What am I asking for? What is the purpose of this? What are you asking me to imagine? So when we say the Lord's Prayer and say our Father, unless we are totally mindless about it, which much of the time I think most people are, what do we mean? What do we mean by the word our? And certainly what do we mean by the word Father? When the Lord's Prayer was first composed, the word our had a very clear, definite meaning. Our referred to this small group that was using the prayer as part of their communal time together. They didn't say it in church. Synagogue didn't have the meaning that we think it means for them. It was a gathering. They didn't say the prayer at a funeral or a memorial service or some other gathering like a football game. It was part of something that gave them identity and meaning. Our, our had a meaning. There was an urgency. There was a concreteness to every phrase in the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. It had a meaning for them that it's hard for us to know anything about except academically. They, they were a community of such a nature that often the very survival of their lives depended on how they stayed connected with each other from one gathering to another. They were always coming in on a wing and a prayer. Now, if you extend the word our to apply to us, our neighborhood, our neighborhood, our city, our state, our country, the United Nations of America. We're not united. The racially motivated killing yesterday in Jacksonville, Florida reflects just another way we're split apart. Now, I don't want to paint a picture that isn't true of things. I think that's one of the things that I have been guilty of. I think it's an occupational presence hazard for preachers, to paint us into some dark hole and then at the last minute to get rescue in to say, here's the answer, you know. I grew up in that kind of tradition. Maybe some of you did too. Evangelical Christianity would threaten you with hell and then at the last minute offer you Jesus as a way to get you out of it. You know? I heard a story about this preacher who was of that ilk and he would preach sermons that would get the congregation right on the edge of panic. And one Sunday he was preaching this roaring sermon about the threats of hell if you don't repent. And he had even arranged to have an actor dressed in a devil's suit come roaring down the middle aisle in the middle of his sermon to scare the people. And when the devil came down, everybody stood up and was panicking for repent. Please repent. Except one old guy who was seated on the front row. And he just sat there smugly smiling. And the preacher looked down at him and said, aren't you afraid? Aren't you afraid of going to hell? Aren't you afraid of Satan? And the man said, afraid of Satan? I've been married to his sister the last 48 years. <laughs> Every year, there is a study, one or more, that are published uh, by some medical organization about um, research being done about longevity. And this year, the study came out at Harvard Medical School. Um, I have a theory about why they come out. They're funded by the government, and I think, you know, anything that the government can help do to lower healthcare costs, because if you don't have any insurance, you have to be taken care of if you go to the emergency room, and you know who pays for that, everybody else. So if you can get the cost down, that would be good. good. 
And um, I always look at these lists with, with interest. The most recent list, you find on it the things that you would expect to find and then maybe some things that you, you wouldn't. For example, if you want to live longer, the first thing you need to do is exercise. The most recent study says that just adding this one behavior to your life will produce a 46% decrease in the risk of death from any cause compared with those who don't exercise. Number two, I'm going to skip for now. Number three is avoid use of tobacco in any form. I think that by and large, even though I see more people vaping, by and large, the United States has done a pretty good job educating people not to smoke. I checked and the, the, there's still a decrease in the number of people who smoke. Number four is knowing how to manage stress. The study explicitly said, having a daily spiritual practice no, it didn't say that, but it's what it implied, right? <laughs> to practice some sort of mindfulness is a, is a good thing to do. Number five is uh, eating what is known as the Mediterranean diet. That's one that's rich in plant-based foods, fruit, beans, nuts, moderate amounts of fish, cheese, little or no meat. Number six is avoiding uh, or being moderate in the consumption of alcohol. Uh, alcohol consumption is on the dramatic increase in this country, especially since the pandemic. And though there are medical uh, restrictions printed on the side of some alcohol containers, as, as a general rule, when alcohol is advertised, they, they won't say anything except they are required to say drink responsibly, right? Because the alcohol industry has been so successful in lobbying about that. Um, and yet, most vehicle deaths, most vehicle accidents, most domestic violence are the results of alcohol. Um, the alcohol you drink is made out of the same thing they use for jet fuel in airplanes, so it makes sense to put it in your body. <laughs> Number seven on the list of things to do to live longer is get a good night's sleep. When I'm counseling someone and they say they're depressed, that's the first question I ask. How much sleep are you getting? Number eight is be surrounded by positive social relationships. Again, we live in a society where we're fragmented and withdrawn from each other and not a lot of connection. So those are the eight minus number two of the things that you need to do if you want to live longer. Anybody want to take a stab at number two? Yeah. What? What? Faith? Have faith? That would certainly help. I think it's in one of the lower ones. What? You'll never guess. I couldn't guess. I couldn't believe it when I read it. I, I was so stunned that I had to go look for corroborating evidence that number two is actually what it is. Number two is avoid opioid addiction. I look, you could, you check it out. I looked on Google. An agency within the Department of Health and Human Services reports that the opioid crisis is the United States' number one public health emergency. I couldn't believe that. I'm not sure why this is true, but one reason is that we're not an hour. We're not connected with each other. We're not paying attention to each other. We don't give enough positive regard and affirmation and support to each other. The tribal units that we have created or that have been created by our clever use of technology fuel fear and fuel violence, not community. The ways we have of entertaining ourselves as a culture lead to withdrawal, fragmentation, and numbness. And those are down payments for a destructive life and lifestyle. Now, there's no quick fix for this because we didn't get here overnight. But my faith is, which is one of the reasons I'm standing here, 
that if you and I can live out lives that embody our, we can make a difference in this. Jesus taught over and over in what he said and what he did to say our. And in this regard, we can say to each other when we embody it, you are my sunshine. When I think about the current condition that we seem to be in as a country and a world, we're coming in on a wing and a prayer. Now, I just want to say one more time, and I'll probably repeat it in the next Sunday or so, that the community of people who created the Lord's Prayer took it out of a collection of words that they had heard from Jesus. They created over a long period of time. They pieced it together. The three versions that we have of it in Luke, Matthew, and a document called the Didache, which was uh, written sometime in the mid-second century, uh, is very different from the one we use in our worship today. This is stuff I think you ought to know. It was created out of a culture that we know nothing about except academically. But this prayer provided them with an identity. It provided them with a memory of their founder, and it gave them meaning. They had been told by Jesus, you're the light of the world, and they believed that, and they took it into themselves. And they knew by experience that they lit up each other's lives. They were each other's sunshine. And they provided each other the support they needed to get from one day to the next. Of course, the communities that created this prayer added to it another word that they also got from Jesus, and that was the word Father. And uh, just as it is my belief that we'll have to continue working at understanding the true nature of the communities that created this prayer after the, their experience of crucifixion and resurrection, we're going to have to do some major rearranging of the religious furniture in our mind to begin to get the impact of this addition to their thinking of the word Father. And, and, and my belief is that though we do not have the understanding of God that their worldview allowed them to have, get it? We can have an understanding of God that is as intimate as theirs. Good Jews didn't utter the name of God. They had words they used, but they were just pointer words. And um, you couldn't approach God in some casual way. And then comes along Jesus, who says, um, Abba, Daddy. Their law re required no graven images of God. God's name was so holy that it couldn't be said. For reasons that are absolutely irrelevant to why I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, we have started watching The Chosen. Um, <clears throat> we started with the first episode, first season. If you don't know about The Chosen, it's a multi-season series about the life and ministry of Jesus. It's very traditional, very conservative. Uh, in its understanding and reconstruction of the biblical story. Sometimes it goes, in my opinion, way too far out of the way to capture a literal nature of the scripture. But I wanted to see what The Chosen was about because on a podcast I listened to, I heard that it is the most successfully crowdsource-funded movie video production in the history of movie video production. So, I th and I learned about some of the actors, and so I said, I think I want to start watching this. It's on, it's on Prime. And so, uh, after watching the first six or seven minutes of the first episode, I loudly said, I'm not going to like this. <laughs> but I did. It is really, really well done. Any of you have seen it? No, it's, uh, it's well done. And I disagree with the historical reconstruction, the literal bias, but that doesn't distract from the 
the, the quality of the production and, and action. You're looking at Jonathan Rumi, who plays the part of Jesus, um, and, and he really depicts Jesus in a really quite human, humane way. And uh, Paris Patel plays Matthew, and those of you who've seen it know that Matthew has Asperger's um, in, the, in The Chosen. It's, it's really well done. The point is that in The Chosen, it's really, really clear that Jesus has a very intimate relationship with God. And um, this is the mystic's approach to the sacred. Prayer for the mystic is simply and profoundly relating to the God who already resides in their being. Mystics don't expect God to do something for them like rescue them from trouble or find them a parking place. They do live as though they can't make it without this relationship. They pray as though everything depended on God. They live as though everything depended on themselves. Now, you and I live in a time where, whether people want to know it or admit it or not, because of the pre, we, we are not in that pre-Copernican, pre-Darwinian, pre-Freudian, pre-carbon dating, pre-Hubble, pre-James Webb telescope, pre-much of the other understandings that we have of the cosmos now. We're not there. So that kind of God is no longer viable for us. And yet, at the same time, religion has become more and more and more of a factor in people's lives. That you are here and that there is an interest in this sort of thing is terrific. And we're not the only place where this is happening. This is happening in a lot of parachurch organizations that are interested in re-understanding Jesus and re-understanding Christianity in a really new and, and different way. On the other hand, we're also in a culture where Christian nationalism is a looming threat to our country. 20 years ago, what's going on today seem, would seem unimaginable today. That there would be the banning of books and the kind of upset there, there is in public life and religion intruding itself in public decisions. Karen Armstrong says that her studies have shown that every single radical religious movement that sprung up in various societies, all the way from Islamic fundamentalism to Christian nationalism, has been fueled by a profound fear of annihilation. You might remember the Charlottesville uprising and mostly guys, white guys, going through the streets of Charlottesville screaming, Jews will not replace us. They weren't talking about Jews. They were talking about themselves and their deep fear that there's something happening in this culture that's going to get them out of first place. When uh, Stephen Kleinberg stood right here a few weeks ago, he talked about, a month ago, whenever it was, he talked about the fact that Houston has got the opportunity to be the future of the country because we're so diverse and, and we, we have the opportunity to be an hour in a way that could be a model for the rest of the country. Now, whatever you think about religion, it's something humans have always done. We're constantly creatures seeking a way to go beyond the self. That's one way I understand the opioid crisis. I mean, it, it, to take opioid, another word for it is to get high. You know, we want to go beyond where we are in some way. And, and religion has always been the way humans have sought to come to terms with very often this tragic, baffling world in which we live. And in talking about religion, I'm not talking about the acceptance of certain dogmas or even belief in God. You, you don't have to believe in God. Buddhism is an example of a religion without God. By religion and faith, I'm meaning an involvement in the struggle that gives people 
meaning. That's where the Lord's Prayer was created, as something that gave them meaning. And we've all grown up with an understanding, and, and some of us, um, with a religion that has a belief about um, God who exists out there somewhere, and this is true because it's in the Bible, and we got the Bible because God dictated the Bible and told us, this is what you need to read to know about me. And so good Christians can quote Bible verses back and forth at each other to prove their religious points of view. When the Lord's Prayer was created, none of that was possible. It wasn't even part of their mindset. There were no Bible to quote. There were no printed scriptures. Besides, most of those people were illiterate. For these people, God was an experience. And they got to and maintained that experience by having a practice. And their spiritual practice was together like this, except in a smaller group. They were spiritual companions to each other. You got enough to eat? You going to make it through the night? Any way I can help? And they experienced that they were more fully themselves when they were doing that. When they were giving themselves away. They weren't interested in going to heaven. They were interested in making it to tomorrow. And they looked to each other to be the answers to their prayer. And in, it is in this that you and I can find the practical application for all of this. That is to say, the crucial test of any theology or spiritual practice is, does it result in compassion? If your understanding of God makes you kind, patient, selfless, you got a good theology. If it makes you bigoted, self-righteous, contemptuous of other people's faith, dismissive of others, you got a bad theology. Christian nationalism does not pass the test for good theology. Now, I said we'll continue to revisit many times the notion of God, but for now I will affirm that compassion is more than a test of faith. It is itself creative of a sense of God. Rabbi Hillel, an older contemporary of Jesus, summed up the entire teaching of Judaism by saying, do not do unto others as you would not have done unto you. That is the Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. This is an extraordinary statement. Um, by the way, there is a statue of Hillel teaching this to a young student and you notice that the student is standing on one leg, and this grows out of a story, whether it's a myth or not, I don't know, of Hillel being challenged to say, can you say the Torah in, by, in its entirety by standing on one leg? And that's just what he said. Do not do unto others as you would not have done unto you. That is the Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. That's an extraordinary, as I said, statement. Do you get it? You get it? There's no mention of God in this. And yet, God is at the heart of it. If we can learn to live from this space of compassion, which would mean living from the heart of God, I think we can do our part to make this world a better place. Now, this insight is nothing new that I've shared with you. It's in the scripture. It's in the Hebrew scripture. And I'm going to tell you a story about that. You know, the Jews, Christians, and Muslims all refer to Abraham as the father of our faith. Um, I say that um, Abraham demonstrated his faith because he got up and left home. Leaving home, I'm not talking about literally, although sometimes that's important, but emotionally is really important on spiritual journey. Gonna leave behind and go out there. 
He's called the father of faith. But if you really read the Abraham story, he's seemed pretty much in the dark a lot of the time to me. He's constantly questioning. But there's a story about Abraham that is an archetypical story in Hebrew uh, tradition. So Abraham is sitting outside of his tent in the hottest part of the day in Mamre. And one day he sees three strangers coming. And then, as now, strangers were potentially dangerous. By the way, this story has given um, origin to one of the most famous icons that exist. And that's this icon of Abraham and the three strangers, which has now been appropriated by the church. It was appropriated by the church very, very early as an understanding of the Trinity. But if you go back and you read the story in the, in the Hebrew tradition, it um, begins with Abraham was sitting by his tent and uh, three strangers approached and he realized in conversing with them that one of them was God. And that's the story, okay? So the strangers come, Abraham doesn't know this, and uh, he immediately sends Sarah to go put together a feast for these guys. I mean, can you imagine three people show up, you look out and see three people on the street and say, come in, I'm going to fix you a big meal. And, and, and in the process of doing that, he has, or they have, one of the most amazing conversations in all the scripture. You're going to have to go read it to see for yourself, but it just, it's just amazing. And it transpires in the scripture that one of these strangers is Abraham's God. And, and the reason the story became important, both the Jewish practice and theology, is that it is in the act of compassion that there is this divine encounter. Now, today, I fear that we are of the mind that we need to got to work all this stuff out before we act. You know, we got to figure out, well, what do we mean by God, and who is God, and where is God, and what do we mean by hour, and we don't have an hour, we need to get our hour together before we get in, who is Jesus, and all this stuff. And I think that's really good in a lot of areas of life. If you're going to perform surgery on somebody, you probably need a plan before you go in and know exactly what you're going to do. But when it comes to the matters of the spirit, we live first compassionately. And out of that, we get a glimpse of what gives meaning. So, yeah, I agree. I'm going to continue to stand up here and puzzle about stuff, meanings of prayer, God, meaning of life. But <clears throat> while we're waiting for answers in a time, and I'm not being histrionic, but in a time when we are really coming in on a wing and a prayer, could we be sunshine to each other? And could we pray as though everything depends on God, but live as if everything depended on us? No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. Thank you. Thank <clears throat> you.